Fusion, the international science radio show. We have a bouncer and the doors of perception. The good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to Diffusion. Relax while we infuse weird and wonderful science into your brain. I'm Ian Wolfe. On this edition, we'll feature pasteurisation and synesthesia. But first up, here's the news with Jackie Hayes. The first artificial digestive system has been successfully created. After 12 years of hard work, it's finally here, a model gut. It really simulates all the actions and processes of the human gut, including chemical and mechanical simulations. Food and drug developers can feed the model gut and determine the effectiveness of their product, and all without having to do any animal testing or expensive, time-consuming studies using human volunteers. According to scientists from the United Kingdom's Institute of Food Research, who developed the model gut, most of the previous research has only looked at the chemistry and biochemistry in the gut, completely ignoring the physical breakdown and the resultant interaction of physics and chemistry. This model gut will allow scientists to observe flow behaviour, dilution, mixing and particle breakup. It will also be the first time they observe how foods and medicines really interact during digestion, and gain more understanding about the fate of nutrients and medicines taken orally. We're all going on a lunar holiday. Well, at least citizens of a country with a space program might be going on a lunar holiday. NASA has announced plans to set up a colony on the moon. The south pole of the moon will be the most likely place to house the permanent colony, starting construction in 2020. This is part of the long-term goals for NASA that George Bush outlined in 2004. There will be a manned mission to Mars, but the first step along the way will be the Moon. The solar-powered colony on the Moon will serve as a base for these missions to the Red Planet. The last manned mission to the Moon was in 1972, and there's no doubt that this one will be quite different. A crew of four will visit the Moon for week-long visits, traipsing all over the surface in low-gravity utility trucks and setting up living quarters and their power units. There's even the possibility of setting up large observatories on the dark side of the moon. NASA will not make its official decision about exactly where the colony will be built until 2008. However, most scientists believe that the South Pole is the best place for it. This is partially because it's always bathed in sunlight, which, which is necessary for the solar panels. Although NASA hasn't officially announced any plans, another reason for colonising the South Pole may be the commercial collection of helium-3, a form of gas seldom found on Earth, but well-suited as a nuclear fuel. According to some experts, helium-3 is so efficient it could solve the entire world's energy problems without producing any waste, radioactive or otherwise. Do you get woken up or annoyed by all those darn high-pitched birds? Well, apparently, it's because of all the city noises you're making. Birds are adapting to our modern environment. City-dwelling songbirds are starting to sing shorter, higher-pitched songs than their forest-dwelling relatives. The sweet singing tunes of the great tits 
a widely spread group of songbirds, were recorded in ten major European cities, including London, Prague and Paris. The songs of great tits in nearby forests were also recorded. Two important songs had changed, the songs to attract mates and the songs that defend territories. Hans Slubberkorn, who led the team from Leiden University, says that in 10 out of 10 comparisons, we found that birds in cities use a higher minimum frequency. The songs in cities are faster, especially the duration of the first element of each of those repetitive phrases. The birds are adapting to the lower frequencies used in urban environments, such as traffic noise, the humming of air conditions, and airplanes. According to Dr. Slavikorn, species that may otherwise be likely to breed in urban areas may be pushed out, finally, by increased noise interference. And lastly for today's news. An ancient Greek device, discovered in a shipwreck 100 years ago, has turned out to be an incredibly accurate celestial computer and the most complex object preserved from antiquity. In 1901, 82 fragments of an ancient device were discovered off the coast of Antikythera, a small Greek island. Named the Antikythera Mechanism, this 2100-year-old device was made up of at least 20 precise, hand-carved gears and was covered in a mysterious inscription. In a study published last week in the British journal Nature, scientists used recently developed methods to image the surface of the mechanism and reconstruct X-rays into 3D models. According to Mike Edmonds from Cardiff University in the UK, the device is even more sophisticated than previously thought. Medieval cathedral clocks were the next object that achieved a similar level of sophistication. The team uncovered twice as much Greek text on the mechanism. Text on the outside casing of the mechanism describes astronomical cycles, including numbers related to planetary motions, and containing the word sterigmos, which refers to the apparent change in direction of planets. The position of the sun and the moon in the zodiac was displayed on one of the 30 gears, along with a 365-day calendar that could be adjusted for leap years. Another one of the 30 gears had text between the teeth at certain intervals, representing either the moon or the sun. Using historical eclipse data, the scientists found that in the period 400-0 BC, the sequences of text on the gear exactly matched lunar and solar eclipses. The mechanism was built using Babylonian astronomy, which was the only sufficiently complex description of the moon and eclipse cycles available during that time. Parts of it are also based on an early Greek explanation of the irregularities of the moon's motion across the sky, caused by its elliptical orbit. This is attributed to the astronomer Hipparchos. You're listening to Diffusion Science Radio, diffusion at 2SCR.com, brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network. Now Charles Willock brings the colour of sounds that taste like music, with original guitar by Lachlan Watmore. This is a light-hearted look at synesthesia, the remarkable ability of some people to perceive one sense as another. That is not to say that synesthesia is a light-hearted matter, since sometimes it might be good to be able to turn it off. But here we are trying to illustrate the concept. Consider, for example, some computer functions are represented as sounds. If something is broken, then the computer might give you the sound of breaking glass. There are many different varieties of synesthesia. 
One is where people can see written numbers as colours. Four might be red, and three might be blue. So, three plus four equals magenta. Hey, that could be useful at times. So let's sense, for example, what a written URL might sound like. Gov might be perceived as a snoring sound. And perhaps edu could be represented by a school bell. Anyway, you get the idea. For the purpose of illustration, I've chosen the new website for Diffusion Radio, www.diffusionradio.com. To complete the experience, we might throw in the HTTP and maybe some kind of download sound. Looking at the URL, the first thing that sticks out is the semicolon. Two of something. And how about a slashing or cutting sound for the slashes? That sounds pretty good. The www seems easy enough. We could have anything that goes woo woo woo, such as an owl. And there are some good owl sounds out there. Maybe a didgeridoo. That can be pretty funky. Maybe clapping. Simple and easy to remember. However, when my friend Errol suggested the sound of a loon, which is a kind of a Canadian bird which looks like a duck, but isn't a duck, well, that had to be it. Loons sometimes make a really spooky tremolo sound. Here's part of a clip with kind permission of US Fish and Wildlife Service. For the diffusion radio part, we can do a voiceover and make it kind of um, a bit spacey sounding with, uh, with some technology. Diffusion radio. <laughs> Thank you, Marina, and happy birthday. Now, the issue of .com. A raspberry sound comes to mind. Maybe that's a bit unfair, and this is a family show, and besides, many dot-coms do good things too. Maybe we can settle for something a little milder. If all that works, we have some celebrating to do. That could be uh, the download process, for example. So, just about time to put this all together. The HTTP. We can tie it all together with the dots. Let's give it a bit of a musical intro and see how it sounds. Lachlan Watmore on guitar. Here we go again.
Well, what do you reckon? Thanks, Duck. Hmm. Maybe we will think of birds, not synesthesia, next time we use our browsers. Thanks, Charles. Do you like milk? Lachlan Watmore will now tell you why. If anyone could be called a giant of 19th century science, it would be Louis Pasteur. Not only did he push microbiology into the modern age, he also made groundbreaking discoveries in chemistry and brought about a small revolution in education and the scientific method itself. However, it was in the infant discipline of microbiology that he made the contributions by which we remember him. Louis Pasteur, as the name suggests, was a Frenchman. He was born in the town of Doul in eastern France into a family of tanners. He started getting good results in school from the beginning and had earned his PhD in physical sciences at the relatively young age of 25. The very next year, he announced the findings of his first discovery to the Paris Academy of Sciences, a finding for which he is not usually remembered but easily counts as one of his most groundbreaking. He reported to the Academy that two acids, tartaric acid and racemic acid, had identical chemical constituents and compositions, but behaved in radically different ways. One of them, when dried into salt crystals, rotated plain polarised light to the left, and the other acid, in the same state, rotated it to the right. Furthermore, one could be used as food by microorganisms, while the other was left alone. 
and yet the chemical formulae of the compounds remained identical to each other. Pasteur, in a brilliant mental leap, realised that the shape, not just the composition, of the two molecules was important, and that while the type of atoms and their ratios to each other might stay the same, the arrangement of those atoms in three-dimensional space must be different, hence the differences in physical properties. In doing so, he invented stereochemistry, which is the study of three-dimensional properties of chemical compounds. However, given that we all open cartons of milk with the word pasteurised printed on them, it is for microbiology that Pasteur is best remembered. In 1854, he was made dean of a new science faculty at the University of Lille, where he received a request to investigate the pro process of fermentation. He soon discovered that fermentation was caused by microorganisms such as yeast, and that fermenting media such as grain or potato do not ferment all by themselves. He demonstrated, he demonstrated this, by fi this finding by injecting milk with various microbes, which made it go sour. In those days, some people still believed in spontaneous generation, which is the belief that life can simply create itself in, say, a bottle of milk, where there was none before, a small genesis. These days, such a concept seems laughable, but given that before Pasteur there was no satisfactory explanation as to why lactic or alcoholic fermentation occurred, belief in spontaneous generation is quite understandable. After all, milk goes off, doesn't it? And I didn't see anybody put something in the bottle. Pasteur, in a series of simple experiments, proved that it was the exposure of these substances to air and the microorganisms floating in it that caused them to putrefy. Once he'd done this, he put this newfound theory to the work in the preservation of wine and vinegar, which were both important to France's economy. It was at this stage that he invented pasteurisation, the heating of wine, vinegar, milk and other perishable liquids to kill harmful microbes and enable them to have longer shelf lives. The British were particularly grateful for his discoveries because now they could transport good English beer all the way to India without fear of its deterioration. From fermentation, Pasteur then turned his attention to disease. He single-handedly saved the French silk industry from ruin by identifying two sources of pathology in silkworms and formulating procedures to prevent further contagion. From there, he developed an interest in vaccination, influenced by the Englishman Edward Jenner, who had used cowpox to inoculate against smallpox. The scientific name for cowpox is vaccinia, hence the word vaccine. Through his heating methods, Pasteur was able to produce a weakened or attenuated cultures of various pathogens, not virulent enough to cause disease, but still recognisable to the immune system and therefore the cause of an immune response. His first success was the inoculation of a herd of sheep against anthrax, which was followed by the protection of chooks from chicken cholera. The incredible thing that is, is that in those days, people knew almost nothing about immunity. Pasteur had observed that chooks who had survived chicken cholera never got it again, and in another great mental leap, reasoned that such immunity was the result of exposure to the pathogen, not an innate quality. This was truly inspired independent thinking, particularly given that Darwin's evolutionary theory had just become public and scientists everywhere were talking in terms of innate characteristics and the death-driven mechanism called natural selection. really love that bit. In 1885, Pasteur, using his new technique, cured a young boy of rabies. After working on dried tissue samples from rabid dogs, he developed a vaccine for the disease using attenuated virus particles. Three years later, the Pasteur Institute was founded with its namesake, naturally, at its head. <laughs> 
By this stage, glory and honours had been heaped on the man from far and wide, and Pasteur didn't shrink from it, knowing full well his national worth as well as his achievements. However, ill health had dogged him for many years, and he died in 1895 at the age of 73. Pasteur just didn't excel in science. He made several innovations in education. While at Lille, he instituted evening classes for the industrial workers of the town and made sure his science students got out into the fields and factories and got their hands dirty in the pursuit of knowledge. He favoured the field over the laboratory and demonstrated time and again the close relationship between theory and practice. So next time you crack open a carton of milk, remember the late, great, big Louis Pasteur, a man who saved lives, opened minds and exemplified la grandeur de la France. And now to take us out, some music written by a German. was Lachlan Watmore, ably assisted by Ludwig van Beethoven, on the life of Louis Pasteur. At this year's party, would you like to make grapes sparkle in your microwave oven? First, get some green seedless grapes. Cut your grape in half and put both halves face down on a plate, just touching. Next, put the plate in the microwave oven and set it to high. Switch it on and watch the magic. The hemispheres of the cut grape act like microwave lenses and concentrate the microwave energy in the grapes. This doesn't just vaporize some juice, but turns the juice into an electrically charged gas called a plasma. When, after a few seconds, the plasma from both halves of the grape make a circuit, a big spark will leap between them. It's very pretty, but this is the point at which you should hit stop on your microwave to prevent any damage to your oven. One summer, engineers at Digital Semiconductor attached electrodes to an innocent dill pickle. They found that an alternating current made the pickle glow. They published the results of their experiment into the electroluminescence of organic food products in the report Characterization of Organic Illumination Systems. Years later, succeeding engineers at Digital found the report and the pickle box, so they used it to put current through some horseradish kimchi a Korean dish like fermented coleslaw. They found at 140 volts, the kimchi converts the alternating current into direct current, AC to DC. As a bonus, it also emits sunlight and raises a stench that could wake the dead. They discovered the light-emitting vegetable diode. In the report, they explained that we have witnessed rectification by stimulated decomposition of an organic food material. This discovery has led to the development of organic diode electronics using plastics, which tend not to decompose. Further experiments with vegetable conductors and resistors could lead to a pizza topping that tunes into 2SER when you apply a current. Ultimately, this inspired the Twinkies project, in which the American cream cake was subjected to rigorous testing. The Twinkies were subjected to solubility tests, lots of water, gravitational tests, drop from a great height, radiation, microwaved, rapid oxidation, burned with a flamethrower, resistivity, lots of electricity but no glowing, and finally a Turing test to find out if they were thinking beings. The Turing test was last so the experimenters wouldn't feel bad about doing their destructive experiments 
if the Twinkies proved to be sentient. They used a student as a control subject and put the cake and the student behind sheets. They asked them questions such as, how do you feel about your mother? Subject B answered, she gives me money, I like her. And subject A didn't answer. They asked, what would you describe as the purpose of your existence? Subject A didn't answer. Subject B answered, to woo women. Then they tried word association. Subject B associated all five words with sex. Subject A didn't answer. Subject A was identified as the Twinkie, and Subject B as the human. They concluded that the Twinkies were not intelligent in any way that we could understand, and allowed Subject B to eat Subject A. And that's all from us in this week of Diffusion. If you'd like to contact us, if you have feedback, comments, suggestions, or wild, passionate praise, then email us at diffusion at 2SCR.com. That's diffusion at 2SCR.com. Or check out our podcast feed, feeds.feedburner.com slash diffusionradio, and our website, www.diffusionradio.com. Contributing to the program were Lachlan Watmore, Jackie Hayes, and Charles Wigluck. Diffusion has been produced, panelled, and presented by me, Mian Wolf, in the studios of 2SCR Sydney. Diffusion is broadcast nationally via the Community Radio Network. Join us inside your audio device of choice for more science wondering next week on Diffusion Science Radio.